Murdoch on My Mind is a true crime podcast. It's about victims, so take care of yourself. Some of these episodes are difficult. The descriptions of the vehicle accidents, the horrendous injuries suffered by the victims, and the terrible betrayals they've endured in these cases may be triggering for some. Two good old boys walk into a courtroom. Have you heard this one? I imagine them laughing and joking with each other, catching up on each other's weekends, maybe. But there's probably not that much to catch up on because these two good old boys are close and they talk to each other all the time, allegedly. I mean, I don't have their phone records, right? But they've been friends since law school, roommates even. They have a long, steady history together as friends and as fellow attorneys. These two good old boys were so close that good old boy number two even spoke at good old boy number one's daddy's order of the palmetto ceremony in 2018. Good old boy Randolph III, in case you were wondering. And in case you don't know what the Order of the Palmetto is, it's considered to be the highest civilian honor in the state of South Carolina. It recognizes a person's lifetime achievements and contributions to the state of South Carolina. Back in law school, good old boys number one and number two, along with Chris Wilson, were like the three musketeers. According to Fitz News, quote, strip away their last names and they were practically triplets or brothers from another mother. At least that's how some of their former classmates have characterized them." Unquote. There are also apparently some pretty memorable stories floating around about the trips to Atlanta that these three used to take back in those law school days, according to Fitz News. And no, I haven't heard any of those stories. In an article published by the Daily Beast in October 2021, Eric Bland, one of the attorneys for Gloria Satterfield's two sons, said, quote, There's a history of Murdoch referring people to Fleming, unquote. Boy, is there. He was not kidding. The list of cases that we know good old boy number one and good old boy number two were involved in together is growing. There were the Pinckney family cases that date back to at least 2012 for good old boy number two's involvement, earlier for good old boy number one. Other people's money. Allegedly. There's Paul Murdoch's 2017 possession of alcohol charge in which good old boys number one and number two represented Paul together. There are the Satterfield thefts that started in 2018. Other people's money. Allegedly. And there's the attempted destruction of Connor Cook's life in 2019, starting on the night of the boat crash, when good old boy number one convinced Connor's parents to hire good old boy number two to represent him. And now there's the estate of Blondell Gary. Don't worry, I'm keeping a list, and you can find it on my website if you want more details. And feel free to message me if you have additions to the list, because I'll bet this is just the start of it. Allegedly. 
Now, we all know about the criminal conspiracy charges, as well as several others, pending against good old boy number one and good old boy number two in connection with what I like to call the Satterfield heist, because it was, allegedly. But the only criminal charges we've heard about in connection with the estate of Blondell Gary are the three state grand jury charges for crimes that happened in 2019 involving good old boy number one only. Based on the evidence presented in his double murder trial, we all know that good old boy number one, that's Alec if you weren't sure, was already knee-deep in his addiction and his criminal career by 2012. But if you think that the vice president of the Low Country Good Old Boy Network, Corey Fleming, a.k.a. Good Old Boy Number 2, wasn't already dipping his own toes in the same cesspool of lies and fraud as Good Old Boy Number 1 by the time Blondell's daughters filed their case in November of 2012, well then, you'd just be wrong. Allegedly. Alan Wilson, the South Carolina Attorney General, apparently thinks so, and he's indicted Corey because of it. Hi everyone, I'm Sharon Newman-Edwards. This is Murdoch on my mind. And if you've got Murdoch on your mind... You're in the right place. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 2, The Betrayal of Blondell Gary, Allegedly, Part 2. We know their names, some of them anyway, but I wanted to learn more about the people that we didn't learn much about at the trial. Alec's alleged victims. Since you're here, I'm guessing you do too. This is Part 2 of the Blondell Gary story. If you missed Part 1 last week, you won't be lost today, so keep listening. But you might want to go back and listen to episode one, because there are some details in that episode that I'm not going to cover today. I'm a little sick this week, and my voice is about to go, so I'm sorry about the scratchiness. But we'll get through it. Thanks for joining me as we learn more about the betrayal of Blondell Gary and her family. Because even though the double murder trial of Ellick Murdoch in Colleton County, South Carolina is over, there's still so much left to unpack. And sis, the Murdochs do not travel light. I've got some really interesting information to share with you today, and I can't wait to tell you what I found as I was researching Blondell's case over the past few weeks. We've got some unpacking to do, so buckle up, Buttercup, and let's talk Murdoch. Now, although good old boy number one has been charged with stealing money from Blondell's estate, Neither good old boy number one nor good old boy number two has been charged for any conspiracy or collusion involving Blondell's case, and I can't prove that there was any. I'm going to restate that for legal reasons. I'm not accusing either good old boy number one or good old boy number two or any other good old boy with any other number behind their name of any conspiracy or collusion in Blondell Gary's case. And I'm not accusing Corey Fleming of doing anything wrong in the companion case either. But I can tell you that the appearance of impropriety is absolutely off the charts. According to the standards of professionalism laid out by the South Carolina Bar on their official website, number 1.19 states, quote, A lawyer should at all times avoid the appearance of impropriety, provided that the espousal of unpopular causes the aggressive representation of an unpopular client, 
and unconventional lifestyles shall not be the measure of propriety, unquote. Just in case you'd like a reminder of what a spousal means, because it's not a real common word we all use every day. According to Merriam-Webster, it's, quote, a taking up or adopting of a cause or belief, unquote. So in real people words, they're just saying that a lawyer should avoid any actions that look improper. Always. Every time. Twice on Tuesdays. That's not hard to understand. And that standing up for unpopular causes, representing unpopular clients, and whatever, quote, unconventional lifestyles, unquote, are, are not what constitutes improperness, i.e. impropriety. By the way, I used a 2015 edition of the Standards of Professionalism because it was closer in time to Blondell's case. But I'm just going to say that I really hope that the South Carolina Bar has updated its language since 2015. I'm just going to leave it at that. Now, I don't know if there was any kind of conspiracy going on between good old boy number one and good old boy number two in Blondell's case, but there's definitely a lot of smoke here, especially when you consider the damage these two did later in the Satterfield case, allegedly. This isn't looking good for good old boy number two, allegedly. But first, back to Blondell Gary. Here's a brief synopsis of what we covered last week. Like I said, if you want more info, please go back and listen to episode one where I cover this part in more detail. But even if you just listened to episode one, a quick recap might help. There was a lot of info in last week's episode, and I'm about to give you a bunch more. 56-year-old Blondell Gary had four adult children and five grandchildren. She loved to cook for others, and she was a devout woman of God. She was beloved by her family and she was affectionately known by some as Auntie Blonde or Ms. Blonde. On January 31, 2012, Blondell and Charles Gary were preparing to go to a medical appointment for Charles in Beaufort, South Carolina, about 30 minutes from their home. Charles was an amputee and a paraplegic, and Blondell was his full-time caregiver. Blondell and Charles had been married sometime in the 70s and 80s, I know I'm pretty murky on the dates here, but honestly, we don't really need them. Blondell and Charles shared two adult children, and after they divorced, Blondell had two additional children who were also adults in 2012. Charles and Blondell's marital status in 2012 was also a bit squishy, and it'll be a big part of the legal fight that's heading their way. But on that cool morning in January 2012, it wasn't even a thought. Blondell had arranged for Low Country Medical Transport, Inc., a private ambulance company, to transport them to and from Charles's appointment in nearby Beaufort that morning. After his appointment, the two technicians had once again loaded Charles into the rear of the ambulance and strapped him to a stretcher for his safety. A technician would accompany him in the back during the ride home while Blondell rode in the front passenger seat. They were just over two-thirds of the way home when the ambulance turned off Highway 17 onto the smaller, old Sheldon Church Road heading northwest toward their home in rural Yemassee. Old Sheldon Church Road is a paved, narrow, two-lane road with beautiful old trees on both sides. The speed limit is 55 miles an hour, except for a short stretch near the turnoff to their home. There's virtually no shoulder along the road on either side, and there are large trees, like I said, but also drainage ditches that closely line the narrow road. 
The drainage ditches are basically just shallow dirt trenches, but visually, they narrow the look and feel of the road. There's also dense foliage along this road, which the state trims back from time to time, but they also leave the resulting piles of branches, leaves, and other natural debris on the sides of that tight roadway, crowding it even further and creating another obstacle for absent-minded drivers whose tires leave the pavement, even for a moment. According to the Beaufort County Council's 2010 Comprehensive Plan, county officials were well aware of these issues. Just about a minute after they turned onto Old Sheldon Church Road, as the ambulance approached a gentle curve toward the left, Blundell would have known they were only five minutes from the house. But suddenly, the ambulance driver jerked the steering wheel of the ambulance to the right. The 42-year-old driver, Eugene, had strayed into the wrong lane of traffic, and he was attempting to bring the rig back into its correct lane. But it must have surprised him, because he didn't gently ease back into the right lane. He jerked the steering wheel so violently that it caused him to lose control of the ambulance. Ambulances, of course, are heavier and have higher centers of gravity than a regular car, so the abrupt move to the right may have caused the ambulance to fishtail or swerve back and forth abruptly. We'll never know but it definitely sent the ambulance careening out of control. Although Eugene had the correct licensing and had no history of accidents in his three and a half years with Low Country Medical Transport, Inc., he had overcorrected with catastrophic results. The out-of-control ambulance left the narrow roadway, and then, with its four occupants still inside, it came to an instantaneous stop as it struck a large tree. It was 10.58 a.m. The driver and all three passengers suffered severe injuries in the crash, though all were wearing seatbelts. The ambulance driver and the technician who was riding in the back with Charles were both airlifted to major hospitals in Charleston and Savannah. Charles, already a paraplegic, also suffered serious injuries, including multiple fractured ribs and pelvic bones, a fractured femur, and extensive lacerations and bruises. He was taken to Beaufort Memorial Hospital and then transferred to a major hospital in Charleston, where he remained for three weeks. And Blondell? Blondell almost certainly saw that tree coming at her from the front passenger seat of that ambulance. There was nowhere for her to go, no way to escape. She was trapped. She was crushed as the ambulance hit the tree and suffered blunt force trauma to her head. She died at the scene of this one vehicle accident before help could arrive, just a few minutes from the safety of her home. The single vehicle collision was investigated by the South Carolina Highway Patrol and MATE, the Multidisciplinary Accident Investigation Team. MATE is a specialized unit within the South Carolina Highway Patrol that investigates, quote, complicated vehicle crashes using state-of-the-art technology and analysis to reconstruct the scene, unquote. If you can't remember where you've heard of Mate before in the world of Murdoch, there's more about those connections in episode one. Blundell's death was ruled an accident, and a wrongful death lawsuit was filed by her family. And of course, you already know who the family hired to represent them. Even if you don't know, you know. None other than South Carolina inmate number 00390394, a.k.a. good old boy number one. Of course, no one knew then that the president of the Low Country Good Old Boy Network would 
fall so far or stoop so low, or that before it was over, there'd scarcely be a person in the entire 14th circuit that he hadn't lied to, and that if he hadn't lied to you, well, it was just because he hadn't met you yet. No one knew that he'd one day shave his head and look like the killer he turned out to be, or that he'd win three cups of soup and two beef sticks and he'd be bragging about it. No, on that day in 2012, good old boy number one was still a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was the guy that said hello to you in the grocery store and pretended that he cared how your wife and kids were doing. He was still a big-shot attorney, and the name Murdoch wasn't tarnished the way it is now. In 2012, he was just exactly the guy you'd want representing you in a tragic and heartbreaking case like Blondell's. I'll bet Blondell's family felt lucky to get good old boy number one to take their case. Of course, they had no way of knowing the many secrets good old boy number one was hiding. No one did. So you'll remember from last week that we have these two lawsuits going on simultaneously in neighboring counties. Charles Gary had filed a personal injury lawsuit and had his own attorney in Beaufort County and was suing the same corporations that the estate of Blondell Gary would sue a month later in Hampton County for wrongful death with good old boy number one at the helm. Now in episode one, I also told you that good old boy number one's staff at PMPED probably filled out the application for informal appointment as personal representative of Blondell's estate and that her daughter probably just signed it. But after looking at more documents, I found a more legible version, and I'm not so sure about that anymore. The form was actually filed in probate court in Beaufort County, so the box that was checked beside decedent was domiciled in this county at date of death was correctly checked because that is where Blondell lived at the time of her death. And since the wrongful death lawsuit wasn't filed for another nine months, and it was filed in Hampton County... It makes me wonder if the Gary family was trying to do things on their own for a while before they realized how complicated it was all going to become. Remember, this would have been very early on, only 14 days after Blondell was killed. This isn't a super important detail, but I wanted to correct it anyway. Shady Alec has done enough shady stuff. We don't need to start blaming him for things he didn't do, and this form appears to have been filled out correctly after all. There are still really important documents that we just don't have, because Hampton County, in particular, was not good at uploading documents during this time period. So most of what we have from the Hampton County case actually comes from the exhibits that are attached to the filings that stem from the Beaufort County cases. Are you starting to see why this is all so challenging to sort out? Yeah. And none of the copies of the disbursement sheets or settlement checks are in the files I have. Those are in the files Creighton has, though so we should get them when good old boy number one goes to trial for the financial crimes he committed. Allegedly. Now, good old boy number one only represented the Gary family in their wrongful death and survival action lawsuit in Hampton County, so we're going to concentrate on that one because... Ellen Murdoch stole it. Allegedly. I think you're getting a pretty good idea that the separate personal injury lawsuit that Charles Gary filed in Beaufort County complicated the heck out of things for good old boy number one's Hampton lawsuit. And worst of all for good old boy number one, it significantly delayed the payout. At least parts of it. And that's partly why the crimes that good old boy number one was indicted for in Blondell's case took place in April and May of 2019, seven years after the fatal crash, allegedly. Ellen Murdoch stole it. Again, allegedly. 
So this is where we rejoin good old boy number two as he officially sells his soul to good old boy number one. It's true that good old boy number two had already stolen money from a client at least once before, allegedly. But I'm sure in some way he had convinced himself that he deserved the money or the private plane ride and that his client wouldn't really miss it or some other self-serving BS like that. But this time, it's more than just inflating expenses or paying your own personal bills with client money. It looks like a premeditated plan to game the system, and it fits your M.O. And Alex. Allegedly. And allegedly. I'll say this for him. Good old boy number two is a heck of a wingman. Allegedly. So in episode one, I explained how good old boy number two managed to get himself a gig as opposing counsel in the Beaufort County companion case, and as a result, was privy to the negotiations affecting good old boy number one's case. Just 22 business days after good old boy number one filed the wrongful death lawsuit in Hampton County, good old boy number two had not only managed to get himself hired to represent the personal interests of three of the individual defendants, the officers of Low Country Medical Transport in the Beaufort County case, but he had already filed his official notice of appearance. And this was back in the day when you had to get your filings hand-stamped by the court clerk. You either had to mail these things in or deliver them in person. Mind you, the Beaufort County case was a case that had been going on for almost two months at that point, or, for consistency's sake, 39 business days. Now, some of this is normal. When the case was first filed, Aaron D. Dean of Tupper, Grimsley, and Dean, PA, out of Beaufort, South Carolina, as was good old boy number two, represented Low Country Medical Transport, Low Country Medical Transport, Inc., the three officers of Low Country Medical Transport, and the driver of the ambulance, Eugene. That's a lot of clients. Attorney Dean probably needed someone to take a few of these clients, There was also the fact that the corporate officers really did need their own attorneys to look out for their personal interests, while Ms. Dean did what she was hired to do, which is look out for the interests of the bigger fish, the one with the deeper pockets and the insurance coverage, Low Country Medical Transport and Low Country Medical Transport, Inc. Now, Low Country Medical Transport, Inc. was a small, family-owned corporation, but they were required to have a large insurance policy for just these kinds of events. So maybe Aaron Dean recruited good old boy number two to represent the individual personal interests of her corporate defendants. But even if it was Dean and not good old boy number one who recruited good old boy number two, it seems unlikely that these two good old boys were the types to let an opportunity like this one just pass on by. Allegedly. Of course, good old boy number one would have already had a lot of information about Charles's personal injury case in Beaufort County because, remember, Charles was a named beneficiary in the wrongful death lawsuit that good old boy number one was handling in Hampton County. So it's not like he didn't have a connection to the case. But where it gets sticky is when good old boy number one's best friend becomes personal counsel for three of the officers of the corporate defendant in Beaufort County and the same corporation is a defendant in good old boy number one's case in Hampton County. This little arrangement appears all the sneakier because the three officers of Low Country Medical Transport that good old boy number two represented were not named as individual defendants in the Hampton County case. So it wouldn't have been as obvious to some of the other defendants and attorneys who didn't know good old boys number one and number two or the extent to which they knew each other. 
Now I have no way of knowing if attorney Aaron Dean knew that good old boy number one and good old boy number two were best friends. But since she practices in Beaufort, just like good old boy number two, she might well have. The town of Beaufort only had about 12,505 people in 2012. So the likelihood that two attorneys in a small town like Beaufort would know each other is almost 100%. How well they knew each other is harder to gauge. Aaron Dean also went to law school at the University of South Carolina, graduating in 1992, just two years before good old boys number one and number two. So they might all have known each other there as well. Allegedly. So maybe Ms. Dean approached good old boy number two about the case, and maybe she didn't. Remember, in the Beaufort County case, Attorney Dean represented Low Country Medical Transport, Low Country Medical Transport, Inc., the president, the secretary, and the treasurer of Low Country Medical Transport individually, and Eugene, the ambulance driver. And in the Hampton case, she represented Low Country Medical Transport, Low Country Medical Transport, Inc., and Eugene. But she was the only attorney, other than good old boys number one and number two, that was local to the area. I seriously doubt that the attorneys for American Medical Response, Inc., the Hood Law Firm out of Charleston, had any idea about the close relationship of good old boys number one and number two and how it could possibly hurt their client's position. I also doubt that Charles Gary's attorney, Joseph Dawson III, out of North Charleston, would have known much about our two good old boys either. I also want to point out here that although good old boy number two only represented the personal interests of the officers and not one of the big insurance companies who would eventually be the ones forking over the big money, he still would have been privy to all the negotiations of the corporate lawyers for Low Country Medical Transport, Inc. and American Medical Response, Inc., because his clients had to agree to any settlement as well. And remember, Blundell and Charles were victims in the same motor vehicle accident, meaning there was only one pot of money to be divvied up between them. So the more of it that Charles got in his case, the less the estate of Blondell Gary even had a chance of getting. And the less the estate of Blondell Gary got, the less there would be in legal fees as a percentage of the recovery for good old boy number one, and the less there would be to steal. Allegedly. But once his best friend became part of the group of attorneys on the opposing side of the companion case in Beaufort County, good old boy number one had potential access to all of the insider info on the other side's litigation strategies, what their tipping point was in terms of weighing the cost of litigation versus just settling the case, how hard the opposing insurance companies were going to fight, where they felt their weak points were, what their real top dollar was in negotiations, and how hard and for how long they would need to be pushed before they just settled for their policy limits and good old boy number one could collect his big fee and go home. Allegedly. Good old boy number two was in the absolute perfect position to legitimately discuss settlement negotiations that affected his clients and then give a heads up to good old boy number one. Good old boy number two could also improperly influence his clients to settle for policy limits and not fight either the dollar amount or, the more likely sticking point for his clients, full acceptance of liability. Sound familiar? This allegation of advising his clients against their own interests with the benefits going to good old boy number one is exactly what good old boy number two is accused of doing in Connor Cook's current lawsuit. 
This is what I meant when I said that good old boy number two sold his soul to Alec. Now, the reason this little setup was so cunning is not just because of its subtle manipulation of the parties to act against their own interests or to potentially make these decisions more quickly than they normally would have, but also because good old boy number two was the proverbial fox in the hen house. Here's another quick review from last week. In these kinds of settlements, the parties are often required to give their legal consent to the settlement in order for it to be officially approved by a judge. As the owner of Low Country Medical Transport, Inc., Miss Hattie and the other individual parties to the case would have been required to sign a consent to settle before the court would approve any settlement agreement they were trying to make as a result of mediation. And if she or the other individual defendants that good old boy number two represented were the least bit hesitant, well, then good old boy number one had himself the perfect person in the perfect place to give them the perfect advice to just consent to settle for the policy limits and call it a day. Allegedly. Why would they be hesitant, you might be asking yourself? Good question. As you can imagine, sometimes owners of companies don't want a policy limits settlement, even though it's the insurance company that's paying all the money. The owners don't like it because of the degree of liability it imputes to the owner, which can adversely affect future business contracts, as well as their insurance rates, and even the ability to get corporate insurance coverage at all. And we happen to have the perfect example. Remember when the lovely Miss Gloria Satterfield fell on the steps at good old boy number one's Moselle property and died about three weeks later as a result? So in that case, good old boy number one's homeowner's insurance, Lloyd's of London, paid the policy limits of $505,000, and his umbrella policy from Nautilus Insurance Company settled for $3.8 million, which may or may not have been policy limits, but based on the wording and the filings and the dollar amount, probably not. Both insurance companies dropped good old boy number one after these major payouts, which is a big reason that good old boy number one didn't have any insurance coverage when the boat crash case happened a year later almost to the day that Gloria passed away. That's an odd coincidence, isn't it? Anyway, what we've been hearing is that after getting dropped by both insurance companies, good old boy number one was scrambling to get new homeowners insurance coverage, and he ended up getting a policy that covered Moselle as a hunting lodge. As a result, the policy would only cover incidents that happened on the property while it was being used for commercial hunting and it did not cover bodily injury resulting from, quote, the ownership or use of a watercraft, unquote. The insurance company, Philadelphia Indemnity Insurance Company, sued good old boy number one, Ambuster, and even Renee Beach in September 2019. According to the Island Packet, a judge sided with the insurance company in September 2021, and voila, no insurance coverage for the boat crash victims. Nice job, Alec. And if you're wondering, because I was too, no, boat insurance is not required in South Carolina. It's actually only required in two states, Arkansas and Utah. If you're not real familiar with the different types of insurance and what each covers, homeowners insurance can cover bodily injuries due to a boat crash, but there are some pretty narrow size and horsepower limitations that can negate coverage. So unless you have boat insurance specifically, you might be out of luck, which good old boy number one was. That umbrella policy that he had at the time of Gloria Satterfield's death would have done good old boy number one a world of good. 
if they hadn't already dropped him by then. So yeah, that hunting lodge insurance policy was never going to be useful for anything. But apparently it met the legal requirement of homeowner's insurance coverage for his mortgage company. So there's that. That's Alec. Always looking out for Alec. Oh, allegedly. So back to Miss Hattie and good old boy number two and that consent to settle issue. The order approving wrongful death and survival action settlement specifically states that good old boy number two was present as personal counsel for Miss Hattie in that Hampton County courtroom that day. It also noted in the order, and this is important, that the driver of the ambulance was not present in court, but his attorney was present on the record on his behalf and that, quote, counsel presented his signed consent to the settlement, which is attached hereto as Courts Exhibit A, unquote. And guess what? It was actually attached. Most of the time, all of the exhibits are missing. And in case you're wondering, good old boy number one was there in court too, of course, on behalf of the plaintiff, Blondell's daughter. In the order, Judge Brooks P. Goldsmith made two findings of fact and conclusions of law. Here's the one we're concerned with. Number two, quote, that all parties to the action consent to the settlement and the allocation of the selective policy proceeds. By the way, selective is the insurance company here. That all parties to the action consent to the settlement and the allocation of the selective policy proceeds as indicated by their respective attorneys and the consent signed by the ambulance driver, and it states his full name, unquote. It's not a leap at all here to conclude that if approval of the settlement required the ambulance driver's consent, then it most definitely required the consent of the owner of the corporation who employed that driver. I mean, we knew it already from the judge's earlier statement on the record, but the findings of fact and conclusions of law just further served to verify it. As you'll recall, the owner of Low Country Medical Transport and Low Country Medical Transport, Inc. was Miss Hattie. And Miss Hattie also had a corporate attorney, so she had two attorneys, and rightfully so. Now, good old boy number two was representing her personal interests, as opposed to representing the insurance company for Low Country Medical Transport, Inc., who would eventually be footing the six-figure settlement bill. So good old boy number two had it pretty chillaxy, I guess you could say. The other two defendants good old boy represented were marginal players at best. They were shareholder owners in the original Low Country Medical Transport Corporation that was dissolved by the state well before the accident in January 2012 for failure to file an annual report and failure to pay its franchise tax or income tax in a timely manner. Now those two defendants first filed to be dismissed from the case on November 30th, 2012, but they didn't get released until October 15th, 2018, when the order of dismissal was finally filed with the court and everyone was dismissed from the case. So as a result, they were stuck dealing with the stress of litigation and paying for an attorney throughout the appeals process along with everyone else, which, by the way, was six more years. Seriously. Judge Marvin H. Dukes III even excluded these two defendants specifically from the order granting summary judgment to the plaintiff, Charles Gary, on his negligence, loss of companionship of spouse, and negligent infliction of emotional distress causes of action in August 2013. So maybe good old boy number two did some work that day, but seriously, he was wholly unsuccessful in getting them dismissed from the lawsuit altogether, and he had six years to get it done. 
So clearly good old boy number two didn't make it much of a priority to get his clients dismissed. Allegedly. So all three defendants, the good old boy number two represented, stayed in it until the bitter end when the final order of dismissal was filed, like I said, in October 2018. And so did good old boy number two. So good old boy number two had three pretty low-maintenance clients, and he just kind of snoozed his way to the bank on that one for almost six years, allegedly. I'm not really sure what else of substance good old boy number two did on these cases during the six years he represented these clients, but I think I saw that his paralegal notarized an affidavit once. Eh, I'm sure he did more than that, right? Well, it probably gave him some much-needed time to shop for music on iTunes with the Satterfield money. Okay, so good old boy number two didn't actually have the Satterfield money yet, but as these cases were wrapping up, good old boy number one and good old boy number two were already actively conspiring to deceive the Satterfields, allegedly. That's according to count 11 of the state grand jury indictment of good old boys number one and two, filed by the South Carolina Attorney General on March 10, 2022. By the way, good old boy number two really did make iTunes purchases with some of the stolen Satterfield money, allegedly. South Carolina Attorney General Alan Wilson mentioned it in count 25 of the aforementioned indictments. I love that he dropped that little nugget in there. It's like he's trying to see if we're actually paying attention. I guess it's like attorney humor or something. On a side note, remember those two marginal players I mentioned earlier that good old boy number two represented? I think I've been able to determine what happened there and how they got involved in this in the first place. So the owner of Low Country Medical Transport, Miss Hattie, signed an affidavit on January 30th, 2013, just a couple of months into the case, which gives us three clues, or two and a half clues, I guess, two clues and a small hint. First, she says that, quote, name redacted person A and name redacted person B were individually named as officers of the corporation when it was formed in 2004, unquote. Secondly, she states that, quote, Neither name-redacted person A nor name-redacted person B had any involvement in the business of Low Country Medical Transport and or Low Country Medical Transport, Inc. on the date of the accident on January 31, 2012, unquote. She also says that, quote, Neither name-redacted person A nor name-redacted person B has had any involvement in the ownership or operation of the business at any time, emphasis added. So first of all, name-redacted person A and name-redacted person B appear to be a married couple. I was looking for something else when I came across some info that led me to believe that name-redacted person A and name-redacted person B are Miss Hattie's son and daughter-in-law. I think what happened is that when Miss Hattie originally filed her Articles of Incorporation in 2004, she needed to name the three officer positions in her paperwork, President, Secretary, and Treasurer. So Miss Hattie named her son and daughter-in-law just to fill in those blanks. And she probably told them at the time something like, Hey, I just need to put two other people's names on this corporation paperwork. You won't need to do a thing. And they probably never thought about it again until their names ended up on the wrong end of a multi-million dollar lawsuit. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. And one other little Easter egg I found. Miss Hattie's previous surname, or perhaps her middle name? was Murdoch, spelled exactly the same. And no, 
I don't know what it means, if anything. And finally, just to wrap this up, and just to be 100% clear, as of April 14th, 2023, Corey Fleming has not been indicted in relation to the estate of Blondell Gary or Charles Gary's personal injury case. There's no indication from law enforcement or anyone that Mr. Fleming did anything illegal in these cases. Allegedly. Chapter 4. The end? Not even close. So the estate of Blondell Gary, with Blondell's daughter as the PR, ultimately reached a settlement agreement for two and a quarter million dollars in September 2015. By agreement of the parties, $250,000 was withheld for Charles Gary's pending case in Beaufort County. So good old boy number one didn't quite get policy limits, but close. And good old boy number one was awarded almost a million dollars in attorney's fees and costs. But then there was an appeal, which would have held up the money. An appeal was heard by the South Carolina Court of Appeals in September 2017 and denied in May 2018. It was appealed again, this time to the South Carolina Supreme Court. Cert was denied in January 2019. So, in January 2019, the appeals in this case finally ended. The last document filed in this case was a stipulation of dismissal in January 2020, right before COVID shut the courts and everything else down. After a seven-year battle, Blondell's daughters finally thought it was over. Then September 3, 2021 happened, and the Gary family was forced back into another legal nightmare. On December 9, 2021, Attorney General Alan Wilson filed three indictments against good old boy number one based on his conduct in the Blondell-Gary estate case, one count of breach of trust with fraudulent intent, one count of money laundering, and one count of computer crimes. So in the indictments, the state alleges that on or about April 11, 2019, good old boy number one stole $112,500 from the heirs of Blondell-Gary and betrayed the trust of Blondell's grieving daughters. This theft from the daughters of Blondell Gary was one of good old boy number one's infamous fake forge deposits. You may remember this from Jeannie Seconder's testimony in front of the jury. Have you take a look at it? This is the disbursement sheet for Blondell Gary. All right. I'm going to go put it on the screen again. If you need me to bring it to you, you let me know. And at this time, Your Honor, I'd offer a 319 in evidence. No additional objection. Admit it. All right, looking at this, we have, uh, what's the first name of the client here? Angel. All right. And looking down, uh, we have a recovery amount. And then what's this third line right there? Forge structure in the amount of $112,500. And going to the next page, what do we see? This is the check payable to Forge in the amount of $112,500. All right. And did that go to the real Forge or the fake Forge? It went to the fake Forge in Alec Murdoch's name. All right. And whose signature is that? Alec Murdoch's. Going back to the original page, whose signature is that? Again, Alec Murdoch's. What's the, uh, the date on that? I don't know if you can see it or not. It looks like 4919. Okay. 
Did y'all have to repay that money? We also repaid that money. All right. Why did you have to pay, repay that money? Because it was due to the client and Ellen Murdoch stole it. Good old boy number one took a $112,500 check intended for the heirs of Blondell Gary as part of their compensation for their suffering and for the suffering of their mother as she lay and for the suffering of their mother as she lay dying at the scene of that ambulance collision with a tree. And he stole it. I can't believe that. I can't believe people like that exist is what I really mean. Good old boy number one took a $112,500 check intended for the heirs of Blondell Gary as part of their compensation for their suffering and for the suffering of their mother as she lay dying. As she lay dying at the scene of that ambulance collision with a tree. And he stole it. And he stole it. I'm sorry, guys. I cannot get that line out without my voice breaking. So it's staying in. Good old boy number one then used that stolen money to pay for his own personal expenses, including, but not limited to, making at least one credit card payment, withdrawing cash, making payments to his family members. Did he pay Randolph III? He sure seemed to owe his dad a lot of money all the time. And writing checks to his associates. Allegedly. That's not allegedly. I guess that's in the... Well, it's allegedly. It's in the indictment. Anyway, allegedly. So yeah, good old boy number one's an a-hole. Not allegedly. Not allegedly. According to the indictment, good old boy number one depleted the entire $112,500 in 43 days. 43 days. Just under a month and a half. Allegedly. This is the money laundering part of the charge. Good old boy number one also did some online banking transfers with the money, whether he did it himself or caused it to be done on his behalf, which is the basis for the computer crimes charge. So in April 2019, less than two months after the fatal boat crash that killed Mallory Beach and injured several others, good old boy number one stole $112,500 from the heirs of Blondell Gary, and by May 23, 2019, it was gone. During closing arguments in good old boy number one's double murder trial, Creighton told us that between January and May of 2019, good old boy number one stole a total of $3,757,782.60 from a combination of the estate of Blondell Gary from his close friend Barrett Bowler, who was literally dying of stage 4 cancer at the time, and from the estate of Gloria Satterfield. What. The. F. Allegedly. Justice for Blondell. Justice for Barrett. Justice for Gloria. Justice for Mallory. So back to Ellick and the stealing thing. 
As we know from the double murder trial in which he was convicted in nearly record time, good old boy number one created a bank account under the name Richard A. Murdoch, sole proprietor, doing business as Forge. The government alleges in the indictment that, quote, he created this account for the purpose of misappropriating funds belonging to others with the illusion that the money was being paid to the legitimate settlement planning company, Forge Consulting, LLC, unquote. You remember Michael Gunn from the trial, right? The infamous sender of the She Brought the Heat from Miami Boys text? Yeah, that guy. Chapter 5. Alec and other proof that PMPED was asleep at the wheel. Allegedly. Let me make this clear, first of all. PMPED is not a victim. Palmetto State Bank is not a victim. I know these two institutions lost money when Ellick stole from them, and that's unfortunate. But these institutions lost money because they didn't have the proper checks and balances in place to catch the fraud that was going on under their noses, and or because they chose to hire the wrong people. Nepotism was and still is alive and well in Hampton County at both PMPED and Palmetto State Bank. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be a victim if you're rich but I am saying that if you have some people who had no control over the alleged perpetrators and no way to check up on what they were doing, and you have other people who fell down on the job and completely failed in their fiduciary obligations to their clients, and then they want to call themselves victims? Well, those are two very different kinds of people, allegedly. Corey is not a victim either. You're called a co-conspirator, Corey. We're not falling for it. Allegedly. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Are you starting to get the feeling that a lot more people had to know what good old boy number one was up to than what they want us to think? There were too many things going on for too long. I can't believe that no one knew that something very wrong was going on in the house of Murdoch. And that brotherhood they all kept talking about? It kind of makes my skin crawl. Randy... John Marvin, Corey, Chris, what did they know? And when did they know it? Randolph III surely had to suspect something with all that money Alec kept borrowing from him. Allegedly. what and for how long might just end up being the biggest bombshell of them all and there have been a lot of bombshells so we're almost at an hour and I still have so much more to share with you there's about to be some good news in Blondell's case but like everything else in this saga it won't come without a fight but there's a new attorney on the job and he's taking no prisoners So I'll definitely have the conclusion of Blondell's story for you next week. And I'll finally go over those new filings in the boat crash case that I talked about last week. And of course, Alec's ridiculous request for money from the receivership to pay for his appeal. There haven't been any new filings in response to any of those motions yet, so hopefully we'll have some by the end of next week so we can talk about them. I'm expecting Tiger Tinsley to file all over Parker's on this. 
And we're still awaiting formal responses to Alec's insane request for more money. To learn more about Blondell in the meantime, check out my website, justicedelayedpod.com, and click on the Murdoch on My Mind link in the black menu bar at the top. I've posted a document listing the cases that we've talked about so far that good old boys number one and number two have worked on together, and which ones they've been indicted on, as well as a color-coded document listing all the parties in Blondell's estate case in Hampton County, as well as the personal injury case in Beaufort County, and their main attorneys. That document might help you out if you're having trouble keeping track of the players without a cheat sheet. And show notes. I used a lot of sources again this week, and you can find the full list at justicedelayedpod.com. Click on Murdoch on my mind and select episodes one and two. For photos and more about the alleged victims covered here, you can follow me on Twitter and Insta at Murdoch on mind. Just leave out the my because that's apparently too long for Twitter. If you have questions about anything in the episodes, you can tweet me those too. But most importantly, we'll finish the story of the betrayal of Blondell Gary, allegedly. And we'll keep talking about the victims and the good old boy network that allowed these, mostly men, to perpetrate their crimes unchecked for such a long time. Who knew what and when, but chose to just look away? I think that might be one of the biggest unknowns that's yet to be uncovered. That and where are those damn guns? There are a lot of alleged victims that still need justice, and we're just getting started. Have I ever got an episode for you next week? I can't wait. So if you have Murdoch on your mind, subscribe now, and let's talk Murdoch. Justice for Blondell Gary. Justice for Stephen Smith. Justice for Tommy Moore. Justice for Gloria Satterfield. Justice for Mallory Beach. Justice for Barrett Bowler. Justice for Connor Cook. Justice for all the victims. This is Sharon, and I'll be back.